You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Del Rosso, and I'm very excited for Episode 2 of Derms and Conditions. In this second episode of Derms and Conditions, Dr. David Cohen and I continue our conversation with a focus on systemic therapies. And now, here's that conversation. I want to make sure we get to the systemic agents uh, because there's a lot of excitement there. We've had dupilumab, obviously, for atopic dermatitis uh, in pediatrics, adolescents, and adults. Not, a, not only for atopic dermatitis, but expanded into other atopic disease states that our colleagues use. Uh, what, what's your, what, what can you say top line in terms of the, your utilization, the efficacy, and even though it's not mandated that we get blood tests, uh, how you manage questions about things like conjunctivitis uh, and even some of the other occasional uh, scenarios that happen with dupilumab. I've also, just to mention, seen patients with alopecia areata that are also atopics that have had excellent regrowth of their hair when they're utilizing dupilumab, as well as their atopic dermatitis improving. So I've hit you with a lot there, um, uh, but but I want to get your top line thoughts because I know you see all of these things. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and certainly the latter part of your question with alopecia areata is under investigation, and it, my my take in it, at, you know, you you may need the higher doses uh, to move that along, but but alopecia areata. Um, is is something that we see more commonly in atopic patients than non-atopic patients. Look, top line, dupilumab was a complete game changer in the treatment of moderate to severe AD. Uh, look, I've been I've been in my department for over thirty years, and at any one time, it is not hyperbolic for me to say I had a few hundred patients on small molecules like cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate predominantly. And cyclosporin was my go-to, right? And then after a year or two, we really had to come up with something else. And that often was methotrexate or, or mycophenolate. And the number of those patients has gone down, more than decimated, right? Just way, way down. And, and the reason is that the, the game was changed in atopic dermatitis very differently than it was changed in psoriasis, right? You may remember, you know, at, at, at the change of the millennium, right, we were getting drugs like Amaviv and Raptiva, which are no longer around. And we had sort of 20 to 30% PASI 75s, and we had to monitor patients. And then Etanercept, and adalimumab came up and really upped the game. But over about a 15-year period, we're seeing progressively better and more efficacious drugs associated with better and safer labels, right? And that, that took a decade and a half to evolve to what we have now. Atopic dermatitis, when biologics hit, we hit a very high bar, right? We had a very effective biologic drug with you know, pretty amazing safety profile, right? It, it, we we had dr a biologic drug introduced without any boxed warnings, right? Introduced without any blood monitoring, right? And at, you mentioned it before, the major side effect, the thing that we see is conjunctivitis, right? And there's a few things that you, you watch out for with dupilumab. You mentioned it earlier, blood tests are not mandatory. 
look, this is my practice, right? And everyone's going to be a little different. But I tend to get some baseline bloods, primarily because if I have a moderate to severe patient that I'm writing a biologic, the realities of life hit me. And sometimes that prior authorization may take longer than I need. So if I have my CBC comprehensive metabolic panel, my hepatitis panel, um, ready to go. I could use cyclosporin to bridge. I can use mycophenolate uh, to bridge. That's just a personal preference. And then we start up. I think one way to perhaps mitigate some of the eye findings is there's a dry eye component to atopics using dupilumab. And using wetting drops ahead can be very helpful. One tip also is use the little twisty single-use files. Um, the bottles of wetting agents that we may use intermittently or, you know, an occasional, uh, you know, Visine-like product, those are preserved often with benzalkonium chloride. And I find that can be kind of irritating to eyes if you're doing it multiple times a day, day after day. So those little twisties, single vials, very helpful. Um, but I warn patients about conjunctivitis, many of them already have had it as atopic patients, right? You know, we have to remember that, you know, we're talking so much about, you know, you know, preemptively managing the barrier of the skin, you know, the eye needs the same thing. There's no reason why we wouldn't want to use good moisturizer in the eyes. And, and I think we sometimes forget the same way with rosacea. We forget about, you know, eye findings, ocular rosacea, because we're dermatologists. I think it's important to just pull down the eyelids and, and look at the eyes of patients with atop, because a significant number of those patients unrelated to drugs have have uh, ocular abnormalities just related to the underlying disease. And it's a, when, yes, we're not ophthalmologists, but we can pick up certain things and we could manage that preemptively. I find that I don't see much conjunctivitis at all with dupilumab, but I have every patient using wetting agents, as you said. And occasionally have to give them something, maybe a week of a, a corticosteroid or something else if they need it. And if there's really having a problem, get them to an ophthalmologist. But usually you can get around this. I find that to be the same. Yep. I, 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 I agree completely. And many of them have seasonal allergies and seasonal conjunctivitis, which manifests initially with some dry, pasty eyes. So I agree with your uh, comment. Many patients may have some conjunctivitis that's early treatment emergent, and I'll use a, a topical ophthalmic steroid for a few days to bring it down. Sometimes I'll even use uh, some antihistamine drops that are available over the counter. Um, they, they used to be prescription. They're available over the counter. They're easy to use. And, and that usually takes care of most of them. If it's persistent, if the eyes are frankly really red, then you're getting into an ophthalmologist. And, and David, one of the things I've learned, if they're telling you they have pain or they're telling you they have photophobia, then you're more concerned about keratitis and not just conjunctivitis or blepharitis. Those are signals for that, and you definitely want them to get looked at. But that's been very rare. Am I correct? That is really rare. And you know, keep in mind, unlike adverse events of systemic agents that we typically worry about, right? I'm a guy that goes to sleep 
generally worried about something. Um, these are sort of slow acting adverse events. These are not the phone calls of pneumonia, of a thromboembolic event, of sepsis. These are slow moving. The patients will call you. We talk about it. We do some strategic mitigation there, some treatment. They're calling you back a couple of days later. And in those very rare events that the patient needs to stop the drug, it's occurring over a multi-week or multi-month discussion. Now, the other thing that you mentioned that you asked me about is eyelid dermatitis and this treatment emergent face and neck dermatitis, right? So you have a bunch of moderate to severe topics, right? And, and they have total body involvement with their face and neck. And most of them, they, they get better. Then you have some that had some face and neck involvement, lots of body involvement. You're treating them, they're getting better. And then somewhere along the line, their face and neck starts to get worse. And it gets a bit resistant to treatment or it flares with treatment. Again, not common, slow moving, and you have plenty of time to think about it and react. And I'm tending to use, just like you might expect, lower potency topical steroids like desonide, bringing in the tacrolimus, pimacrolimus, chrysoboral, and asking them to use that daily on the eyelids, on the face, on the neck. And when you pull it back, uh, when you pull back the eruption, keep it going for a while, right? You can often just get through it. Right? Yes. And then, well, when we have some of these newer agents, we may be able to also start tackling some of these more minor adverse effects uh, with these new topical agents. But I think you have to think about dupilumab in a class by itself because um, it's, it's got a low bar of entry for me for, mild, for moderate to, uh, to severe disease because I really don't have a whole lot to worry about. Right. I, I want to, you know, dupilumab obviously inhibits IL-4 and IL-13, which are major overexpressed cytokines in, in the vast majority of patients with atopic dermatitis and either other, other atopic diseases. And, and so it, it's, there's a dual inhibition there, but we have in development uh, two drugs. Uh, uh, both of which are, you know, one, we have the phase three data, I believe the other one, we should have the phase three data very, very soon. And that's tralokinumab and lebrikizumab. They, they inhibit IL-13, not IL-4. And so there's a lot of discussion about, is that going to be effective? You know, what, what's the, obviously they are effective because we have the data to show that. But what's your impression on just inhibiting IL-13, which is an important cytokine in this disease, atopic dermatitis? Right. I, I think, so if we have to recall that dupilumab's blocking the uh, interleukin-4 receptor, and by doing that, it blocks the functionality and, and abrogates the effects of IL-4 and 13. It's like the, it, it's like someone who parks in between two parking spots. You can't you can't park in either one. So you, <laughs> you, you can't park in IL-4 and you can't park in IL-13, right? And um, we have those analogies in, um, in, in, in psoriasis as well, right? We have bridalumab that blocks a receptor versus going after the cytokine. So there are, there are anti-IL-13 antibodies that go after specifically IL-13. And if the question was, 
um, is you have to block four and 13 to get success. Will 13 alone work? 13 alone will work, right? The question is, how do they all line up against each other? You mentioned it. We have uh, phase 2B data on lebrachizumab. And in the highest dose of 250 milligrams every two weeks, dose similarly to dupilumab, you have some pretty uh, impressive scores there. You have easy 75s of uh, about uh, 60% and clear, almost clear 45%. And those look good. But keep in mind, those are phase two, right? And, and you really have to wait for phase three data. Tralokinumab, we have phase three data. And um, we have easy scores and IGAs, not quite as uh, impressive as dupilumab, but clearly demonstrating improvement and, and clearance in, in patients. So the, the uh, global assessments are clear, almost clear about 16 to 22%, right? And easy 75s of about a quarter to a third. So we know blocking IL-13 is effective. And another thing, we really have to wait to see, but you hear it, people talking about it at meetings is, do you get less conjunctivitis? Do you get less facial uh, emergent uh, dermatitis on the eyelids? Maybe. Let's see how the labels fully get adjudicated, how all that data gets adjudicated. But some of those TRALO um, phase three studies did show less conjunctivitis in them. So we have to see what they'll look like. But they're pretty impressive. And then, you know, we also have coming up the pike an anti-IL-31 drug. IL-31 is really critical in itch formation. So anemolizumab uh, showed some interesting data and, and was effective at itch reduction and did reduce a, uh, atopic dermatitis clinical findings. So there's more even in specific uh, anti-interleukin drugs out there. And yeah, yeah, there's, there, there are others coming, but I do want to mention something about the anti-IL-13s, uh, that there was some suggestion of this in the phase uh, 2B data with lebrachizumab, and certainly with tralokinumab, with some of the work they've done that was shown in the phase 3, there is the potential that once you get the patient under a reasonable control, you may be able to extend out uh, when they need to get their next injection. So it may be every four weeks or, or maybe even longer uh, as you're, when you're maintaining the suppression of the disease uh, as compared to dupilumab, which there are some patients that you can space it out. We do that in our own clinical practice, but it's a little harder because of the differences in, in that particular drug and how it's catabolized at the receptor. Um, so there's a potential that some of these other agents may extend out the frequency of, of of injection. I do want to get to the Janus kinase inhibitors. There's a lot of discussion about those. We have, a, a, these are some, a small oral molecules. So I think of that rather than that car that's blocking both parking spaces, David. And when I've had nicer cars, I've done that. And I'm sure it ticked off people. Now the cars I drive, I don't care much about fancy cars. I park in one space and I don't like the person that parked in both spaces, but that has nothing to do with liking a drug. But the small oral molecules, when you think you see 
a parking space open and you get there and there's a little motorcycle in there and you can't park in that space. So we, we have these newer agents. There's a lot of talk about Janus kinase inhibitors. We certainly have abracitinib, baricitinib, upadacitinib uh, coming along, uh, likely for atopic dermatitis first. And it's probably not going to be too far away. We don't know what the labels are going to be like, but I want to get your impressions on those. Uh, and then I have a couple of questions about some biologics for psoriasis, and then we'll we'll call it a day. But can you discuss Janus kinase inhibitors that the oral they're obviously oral agents, your overall perceptions with atopic dermatitis? These are uh, amazing uh, medications that have striking potency, and more importantly, uh, amazing onsets of action, right? These are fast-breaking drugs. Pa you, these, are, these aren't drugs where you tell the patient, we're going to start this one and we'll see how you're doing in eight to 16 weeks. Uh, you're going to be able to tell me how you're doing in the first couple of days or weeks. So I think there's great value there. The, as you mentioned, these are oral agents and, and often dosed once daily. So there, there's a lot of benefit there. And, and, and as you look at, if you sort of think about the mechanism, I like to view JAK inhibitors a little bit like a relay race, right? You have, you have an interleukin um, circulating around. Interleukins are cell-to-cell are -cell communications. A, a central cell is, is sending a signal downstream. So that's the first relay race. And then once that interleukin docks on the cell surface, right, it doesn't that it doesn't have to go in. It, it rings the doorbell at the cell surface, and that baton is passed from the through the membrane with jack stat signaling. So what jack inhibitors do is prevent the two relay racers from passing the baton. The baton is dropped. When the baton is dropped, the second relay race person can't go. They're not allowed to go. The baton's on the floor, right? So. That, that's how these things work. They're working at the cell surface and they're not letting the doorbell get answered. So you brought up some important ones and these are, these are late phase development drugs, right? These are coming. Um, so you have selective JAK inhibitors, right? There's JAK1, 2, and 3. And JAK also dimerizes with something called tick. So that's on the inside of the cell component. And, and the more broad they are, the more um, sort of modulating they are. So if you block JAK1, 2, and 3, you're going to block more cellular processes than you will with just one of them. So the selective JAK1s, right? It doesn't mean they don't touch the other ones, but they require much higher doses to get action going in those. So the JAK1s, you mentioned abracitinib, right? And then upadacitinib. Now, upadacitinib's on the market already as Rinvoke, right, for arthritis. And then baricitinib is a JAK1-2 and is all, already on the market for arthritis for, as a lumiant. So those have phase three late stage um, data, and, and they are effective drugs. Keep in mind, I think uh, JAK inhibitors are drugs that you do have to pay some attention to who you're putting on and how you're going to monitor them, right? It's not quite the same as the dupilumab uh, start. So um, the ones on the market now, I can't tell you what the labels are going to look like for dermatology. That remains to be seen. But there's box warning labels for infections, including tuberculosis, lymphoma, 
blood clots. So you have to, it's sort of a novel adverse effect for dermatology that we have to think about and, and GI erosions and, and tears. So for patients, I have a, a number of patients on JAK inhibitors. They're for those in, in my practice that have failed dupilumab, um, have probably been on cyclosporin and methotrexate, and I'm able to get them with letters, right? But I get CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel, lipids, hepatitis, daquanafiron gold, um, HIV for high-risk patients, and and sometimes I'm getting CPKs. Jacks have a, a, a way of uh, increasing serum CPK. So if I get some a baseline and I get some CPKs while they're on it, um, nobody's panicking um, if they see CPKs for, for another workup. Uh, I also try to, I, I ask about family or personal histories of clotting, right? Is there any history of clotting problems in the family? Um, and I also a- ask... Um, uh, women who are taking birth control pills. I, I, I think that's just one more slight risk we have to think about. But having said that, anytime we're picking most other biologics, we're asking the right questions. We're picking and selecting the patients. And a lot of patients are going to have great value from this because we're seeing the most spectacular efficacy from the JAK inhibitors right now. And with not only not only the clinical disease, and, and I don't want to discount that the monoclonal antibodies like dupilumab and even the anti-IL-13s have impact, significant impact on itching. Janus kinase inhibitors shut down pruritus of atopic dermatitis very rapidly based on the data. Have you seen that in your clinical practice? Yes, and, and it's the first thing people will recognize and they welcome it. And even though they've sort of, we've gone through the selection process and they read about it, once they start taking it, it, it could be like a light switch, the, the itch relief, right? R- really quickly. Um, and so we're seeing for like upadacitinib clear, almost clear in 50, 60% of the patients in the you know first 16 weeks, easy 75s in the 70s percentile at, at 30 milligrams. Abracitinib reporting an easy 90, you know, of, you know, over 45%. These are quite amazing. Um, there was one interesting trial. Uh, the abracitinib trials were called JADE, right? That's their trials. But they had a compare study where dupilumab was in there, right? And it, it's the question everyone's asking anyway, right? They want to know how do they measure up to each other. And it wasn't designed necessarily as a head-to-head because the endpoints were a little bit different. But abracitinib comes out of the gate like a thoroughbred, right? Like you're seeing within the first week or two, um, patients clearing up, reduction of itching, um, and uh, dupilumab a little slower out of the gate. Once you start getting to week 12 and 16, Dupilumab's catching up and starting to thread the needle between the two doses of the abracitinib. So, it, look, there's something out there for everybody. Um, and, and these drugs, right, atopic dermatitis may just be the beginning for, for some of these things because there's a lot of inflammatory diseases where we have nothing. 
Well, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a learning curve on how to use these, and I think that's where maybe some of the trepidation is in the beginning. But you know, with with the, the right education and the and and the right people passing on information on what to do and how to manage, because we're all going to have different kinds of patients that we're going to have to figure out what's going to be the right thing to do. So I think that's well said. I do want to uh, bring the reader's attention to an article uh, that I found very helpful. I believe I passed it on to you by Nash, the first initial is P, and it's in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease in 2020. Uh, and you can actually go on PubMed and print out the entire article. It's open access. And it covers with a, a group of individuals, David Cohen type people, that in, in, in different disciplines that have used a lot of Janus kinase inhibitors and give specific recommendations on what we, what what's suggested right now to do with these drugs and a very nice table. So I would suggest that, that you get that. I, th I think it will help you. David, I want to end up with, uh, with asking you, because I've been reading a lot about these agents for psoriasis, plaque psoriasis, bimikizumab, and ducravacitinib. Ducravacitinib is a tick too. Bimikizumab is an anti-IL-17, A and F. So it has a dual... Uh, inhibition of the IL-17 uh, cytokine, the A and the F. Can you can you just some, sort of summarize those for me, how you view those, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I, and I think probably every everyone's thinking, and you you and I have discussed it often. It's like yet another more psoriasis meds, but you know, uh, they re I think some of these new uh, agents are really going to add a lot uh, out there, and uh, bimikizumab. Uh, as you mentioned, and uh, a dual uh, IL-17 A and F, uh, I'm, I'm excited by it. The, the efficacy uh, is quite striking. It's quite fast onset and, you know, will certainly be leading the pack of drugs out there when it comes to efficacy. Uh, I think the thing we're going to have to think about how we, how we deal with is there's a fair amount of candidiasis in that. Uh, in that group compared to in, in that drug compared to the others in the group. But, uh, you know, candidiasis is something that we can treat. We're good at treating. We see it in dermatology. But I think we're going to see really fast onset of action and some pretty striking efficacy. And, um, and the loading dose situation is different than you don't need all those frequent injections up front. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, it's the same dose from the beginning, uh, going all the way through with with a potential later on for spacing out the frequency of injection with bimikizumab. What about ducravacitinib? Yeah, so that's a tick too, right? And what happens is our, our mind goes very quickly to thinking Jack tick, right? But this is a selective tick too. Um, drug. And uh, this promises to have good efficacy. Remember, this is going to be an oral agent probably once a day, right? And the data that we've seen so far um, promises good efficacy compared to other oral agents that we have out there, right? And haven't seen lab abnormalities reported, um, maybe some minor issues with headache or an occasional zoster, but these side effects are not looking like what we're seeing in the JAK inhibitors. This could be a distinct mechanism of action. I haven't heard of any thromboembolic phenomenon with this one. The question will be, what's the label going to look like? Is it going to be in a premolast looking label? 
um, with no lab monitoring or is it going to have some warnings and is it going to sort of look like JAK inhibitors? I think that's going to make a difference. But if if yeah, the because label- I think your point is well taken, David, because, you know, if the FDA decides to treat them all the same, the reality is these agents are not created equal based on uh, what Janus kinase uh, stat pathways are being inhibited and what the down specific downstream effects are. So the reality may be it's different, but the labeling could be the same essentially for all of them because they give us class labeling. And that obviously affects what happens to us and, and what clinicians are going to feel comfortable doing. So I think that's well stated. Right. Yeah, I think those are the things I'm really kind of excited about uh, in inflammatory disease right now for at least the most common diseases out there. So I can tell you, Dr. Cohen, talking to you is always enlightening. And I I know the listeners are going to get... as much out of it as I did. You know, I, I have your cell phone number and I bug you often. Uh, so this is an opportunity to, to share conversation. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for the invitation to talk with you. I want to thank Dr. David Cohen from NYU for his time and expertise on this podcast. It was a great conversation and I know I learned a lot. If you have any topics, concerns, or questions that you want to share with us, be sure to email us at podcasts at fred.health. And be sure to subscribe to Derms and Conditions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thank you.